The following is a conversation between Tom Adams, co-founder and chief strategy officer of 60 Decibels, and Denver Frederick, the host of The Business of Giving. 60 Decibels is an end-to-end impact measurement company. Using a lean data approach, they speak directly to customers, employees, or beneficiaries returning high-quality data in weeks to help organizations maximize or impact and grow their business. And here to tell us more about what they do and the impact they have had is Tom Adams, the co-founder and chief strategy officer of 60 Decibels. Welcome to the Business of Giving, Tom. Hi, it's a delight to be here. Thank you, Denver. So tell us about the founding story of the organization and what you set out to do. Well, thank you very much. So 60 Decibels began its life as a business line called Lean Data in the Impact Investor Acumen, which is a not-for-profit impact investor based out of New York, which invests across the world. And I joined actually from working, having worked in Ethiopia and Nigeria for the Department for International Development and had worked in aid and previously had worked in the finance sector. So coming to Acumen seemed like a perfect place, the combination of finance and also international development. And they had this problem. We need to do impact measurement. And truth be told at the time, although I told everyone in the interview, I knew how to do this like the back of my hand. I think to some degree, I was faking it until you make it here and didn't know exactly what I was going to do, but knew that it was a really interesting problem. Knew that people were saying, look, Increasingly, we want to be able to judge the social performance of our work. It's a really important issue. It's no longer good enough just to have good intentions. We actually have to know whether or not we're performing. We owe that to the people whose lives we may or may not be affecting and are fortunate enough to serve. And so join Acumen, didn't know what I was going to do, threw a whole bunch of stuff at a wall. And eventually this one thing stuck, it's called, which became called Lean Data, which was we would actually help companies listen to their customers, beneficiaries, turn that data into high quality social performance data. And we did that for our companies in the Acumen portfolio. Then one or two investors came along and said, hey, we've got this great data that apparently you helped the company get. Would you do it for our companies? And before we knew it, we had a business line and that spun out three years ago on April 1st, almost three, to create the business 60 decibels. 60 decibels, what's the significance of that name, Tom? <laughs> 60 decibels is the typical volume of human conversation. Might go up, it might go down, depends who you're speaking to, but most humans speak at about 60 decibels. And we're all about listening to people, allowing people to tell their stories, to give their views about their lived experience. And so that seemed like a nice name for a company all about human voice. I think that's pretty cool myself. You know, there's this quote, we fund endless studies to guide us forward to a vague truth. Still, the answer remains, we simply do not know. I think that was Jed Emerson. In your opinion, Tom, what are some of the common shortcomings of the way we traditionally measure impact? This is a topic I could talk on for a while, so I'll try and be succinct. One of the things is that there have been so many different approaches used, and there just seems to be a complexity, a plethora of different approaches, and everyone's coming up with trying to reinvent the wheel. And just yet, there hasn't been a standardized way of doing this work, like the equivalent of financial accounting, but for social accounting. I think... In the different sectors, they're doing different problems, but perhaps the approach that I came from, which was the international development where charity had come from, they'd come with a very much, over time, quite an academic approach to things that was all about demonstrating to the donors of money that their money was working. And so we had these, we had a very much focus on evaluation and actually these words, monitoring and evaluation. And less work had looked at, well, actually, are we systematically listening to people about their lived experience? And are we systematically living in similar ways so that we can compare and contrast performance across similar organizations? And instead, we had this, we have to 
look at our own piece of work and justify its existence to the person that's given us money. And that rather siloed this work and has meant that we haven't got you know, the basics of anything that scales, which is a repeatable standardized model that people can use over and over again in lots of different contexts so that we can get comparable data, which is surprisingly, given all the work that goes into doing good to the business of giving, to not-for-profit giving, we still haven't built that fundamental system, which is a scalable system of doing high-quality social performance measurement. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, in so many ways, the social sector has fallen into the trap of Wall Street, and that is trying to find out what we've done so we can report on the next quarter. And that tends to focus on outputs, and it doesn't tend to focus on systemic change over a longer period of time, because we're afraid that we'll have a lousy annual report, <laughs> The board will be unhappy and the donors won't re-up. So we have that real sense of short-term fixes to show everybody what we're doing. Right. I would agree. You know, you've mentioned, I've mentioned lean data. What exactly is it and what are its main features? Great. Lean data. Well, in some ways, the phrase lean data came about, if, if truth be told, because I was always surprised that when... I was working as the head of its impact fund and I'd turn up at companies to a company and say, hey, I'm the head of impact and I'm going to do some impact measurement. And the response would be like this. You could see the person go, oh God, it's switch off. <laughs> Here's the person that's going to come and judge me. And so in some ways I was thinking, we have to rebrand this. I mean, impact measurement was sort of sexy to donors, but definitely not to these frontline organizations. And so I was thinking about how can we make this, how can we make, and the fundamentals of it is I'm here to, to think about how you're doing vis-a-vis -vis your customers, the things you actually want to do. Are you delivering on your purpose? When a marketer comes into a room and says, here's all the information I have about your customer to a CEO, they go, tell me more, tell me this, tell me that, tell me the other. And it was so strange to me that when you turn up and say, look, I'm here to help you understand about your social performance and whether you're delivering the social impact, people will be turned off for this. So part of it was rebranding and lean data was a very sexy thing. It was around the lean startup, et cetera. But it wasn't just a rebranding. We also wanted to take on some principles around that back to some of the points I was making earlier, that this work had been very academic, it had been very expensive, it had been slow. It had actually optimized for methodological robustness in order that people could write academic papers, not usefulness for organizations to make decisions quite rapidly. And I was very motivated by the idea of what is enough precision for the decision. So lean started to strip back to this idea of what is enough precision for the decision of an organization and can we reduce the number of people we speak to, to a minimum viable data set, which was like the minimal viable product from Lean Startup, and one or two other features like that would, would focus on a faster, more rapid, more useful set of data collection. Yeah, you know, that does seem to be something that plagues the entire sector. I look at, let's say, contributions pages on online, and we ask people for so much damn information that they don't want to give us. And right. that is why they're not successful. People want to get in, get out. They want to reduce the friction. And I see this all the time when I look at these questionnaires that people come to me and I say, you know what? You really only need three elements here. You don't need the other nine. And they'd be nice to have. But guess what? They're not going to fill it out. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you're going to end up with nothing. And I felt that, and this is a bit of a characterization, it doesn't always happen, but I remember from my time working in international development, and when we did do these big evaluations, someone would come along to some farmer to see if their program had worked, and they'd stop in the middle of the day for an hour or two hours to ask them a 300-question survey, <laughs> go away, 
never tell the person why they did it, maybe come back six months to ask their end line, same thing again, the person would never see this data, it would be published in some academic report. And this is actually not right. We have to respect also, it shouldn't be an extracted process to get your data to prove it to the donor. It should be about listening to someone, respecting their time, having an engaging conversation with someone about their lived experience in order that you can be as least extractive as possible to that person and as useful to them as well in terms of driving accountability to their life. You know, I look at the sector and I say to myself, there is a mindset that this kind of data is nice to have. And in so doing what I'm doing, I'm really fulfilling an obligation and a duty. It's a little painful. It's got a bit of root canal to it. But you're saying, no, this has to be a must have. This needs to be mission critical and something to be excited about. How do you switch that mindset? Gosh, great question. I mean, firstly, taking it out with the bad branding that I had previously, you know, monitoring and evaluation. Monitoring is for school children in the NSA, right? No one likes to be monitored. And evaluation has its place, but not everyone needs to be evaluated either. So let's make it more appealing. This is lean data, this is an easier way to do it. Then I think desperately trying to reduce the complexity and the cost around it. We have to make it viable for organizations. Again, it's a nice to have if you can raise a grant from somewhere to spend $300,000 on an evaluation. That's not a must have if it's beyond your reach. And then obviously we have to increase the value of it. And one of the key areas, insights I think we've had running this is that everyone is doing this measurement separately, right? So they might do a good piece of work, a great piece of work potentially, and they find out about their impact performance and metric X has increased by Y percent. And they go, well, what do we do with that? We put it on an infographic and we tell our funders, but it's very hard to make management decisions around that because you have no context around it. Of course, you know, the financial sector runs out of context. When you have a sense of what returns you might expect for different types of funds and different types of investing strategies, we don't have that for the social sector. But when we do this, what we focus on is repeatability of working with the same organizations, asking similar questions of their customers to build these benchmarks. Then you can give someone metric X is improved by Y percent. And that puts you in this context of the top quintile or bottom quintile or middle quintile of performance of your peers. And suddenly a light bulb happens. People go, oh, now I understand how I'm performing. And people are the same all over the world. Performance is something we all love. And that competitive instinct comes out and people say, how do I improve? How do I get up that ranking? How can I improve against peers? And then it becomes, I think if once we get that into this performance mindset into people and move it from this checkbox exercise for my donors in order that I'd be able to tell them that my view, they'd use their money well enough to this, how do I perform against my peers and how do I improve and how do I do this year and how do I do next year? Then we'll get into this different mentality of this absolutely business critical. And as far as I'm concerned, a bit of competition for social good would be a fantastic thing to have. Yeah, we all know where we need to stand. Hey, I wonder how this podcast is performing against other podcasts. You know, <laughs> that gets me going in the morning. <laughs> so <clears throat> when I hear people talk about impact measurement, something I've always thought about, and I know you've thought about it too, whose impact are we talking about? Well, I actually have a bit of an issue with the word impact, actually. I know um, you do. <laughs> yeah, you might ask me this, but, and it's going to stick and I use it and it's going to stay with us. But the impact, everyone talks about impact and it's a very, it's my impact. Even the word is you are the agent of change. I am impacting others. A philanthropist will say, what is my impact? That doesn't make you a bad person to say that, but it does make it about you and what you're doing. Actually, I'm at the center. 
Yeah, I'm at the center. It's my impact. Actually, social value is actually someone else's life that's experiencing that social value. The, the person who has jeopardy in that impact, okay, you might give some money away as a philanthropist and that organization not do as well as you thought they would. But that's not the same jeopardy as your life is not materially improved by someone who is marginalized in society. That's completely different. So we do need to think about this phrase impact and actually remember that it's not your impact. It's someone else's and that you're not the center of this and it's someone else you should be thinking about. And that would say, lead us to the conclusion, which we think is that then you have to listen to that people or person yeah. to find out whether their life has improved or not. Yeah, that is a great distinction. But you know what? Along the lines you said, sometimes you just have to learn to live with things like impact. I think I feel the same way about nonprofit. I mean, why would you describe a sector of what it's not? It's not a profit. It's a nonprofit. So you say we need to change that. But then you also say, if I try to change it too radically, nobody will know what I'm talking about. So I'll kind of go along for a little bit longer, at least. You've talked about measuring impact and you've talked about donors and I've talked about board. And I think that's all right on. But you also make the distinction, hey, we just can't be looking upstream, upward mobility in terms of the people who gave us the money. What about downward accountability? Speak a little bit about that. Well, this all leads on from those points. I have no problem with upward accountability. It should be accountable upwards, clearly. But it's a pendulum. The system has been built and continues to be built for upward accountability because we do respond to where the money is. And I think it's going to require a shift in mentality to say the real key is downward mentality is have we benefited? How are we performing against the areas of impact judged by the people who do experience this change or not? And how do we perform in that against peers and prove that first before we think about how to prove things upwardly? And one very tangible example about that, I have a bit of an issue with theories of change, which are de rigueur in our sector. Everyone has a theory of change. Mm -hmm. They're setting these things and they're talking to their donors about their theories of change if a person's given them money. And of course, once you set out a theory of change, you have determined what impact is important. On your flowchart or whatever you've described it, you put at the end, these are the outcomes that are going to change. This is why this impact is important. And it's so rare that you ever actually talk to someone and say, well, you tell me what things change in your life and you tell me which of those things were material or not material in your life. And I'm going to build my whole performance mindset around those things. My KPIs are going to determine by what you have said in a report instead determined by this theory of change, which we agree with our donors. And that's a classic example of where this is a system built around upward accountability. If we determine what things are important for the people whose lives do or do not change. That's a great point. In philanthropy, I can speak to, we pretty much define the problem. And then we give everybody an opportunity who are living that experience to tell us what they think about the problem. But it's our problem. They're like, hey, how about I get yeah. to define the problem? You know what I mean? How about we change the container? We might have a different conversation. And I had an interesting conversation with somebody recently who basically said that often philanthropy will come into communities and try to fix what's wrong with them. And they say, that gives us a complex. How about you come in and try to support what's really working in our community and kind of flush out all that's bad by fixing what's strong as opposed to coming in saying, you're broken, you're broken, you're broken, I'm here to fix you. It doesn't seem to make any sense. You know, you take this idea of impact measurement and you bring it to another level, Tom, by focusing on impact performance or continuous impact performance. What's the difference between impact measurement and continuous impact performance? Yeah, a story, an like analogy I sometimes would, would tell there is thinking about kind of a sprinter and these 
and running a race or something like that and, and thinking about this, the traditional methods we have, which are monitoring and evaluation. And it sounds logical when you say monitoring and evaluation is, you know, have a plan, monitor, set out what you're going to do, monitor whether those things were done, and then at the end, evaluate whether that was any good or not. That seems quite a logical approach. But then when you start to unpack it a bit, imagine like you were running a race, you're a sprinter, right? And you said, right, well, I'm going to run this race. And so I'm going to check that I did the things I need to do before the race. I did my training. I turned up on the race on the right day. I wore the right running shoes. And I, I got the new sneakers. But so got, important, the new sneakers. Yeah, I got the new sneakers. <laughs> and I didn't false start. And I ran the race. And then at the end of it, I check all those things. Great, great, great. Those things. And then we evaluate it. And we say, well, what was the time? And you get a time. 14 seconds, right? That seems okay. Like, that seems good. That's certainly faster than I can run 100 meters. And we do that in isolation of itself. That's how M&E works, in isolation of itself. And we go, well done. Impact, 14 seconds. Well done. That was fast. Of course, if you take that time and you compare it to, like, the best times in the world, that's hopeless. Because we'd see that's actually a fine speed, but not great speed. Certainly not world-beating speed. And oh, this, all the fans have left the stadium by the time you cross the finish they, line. They hot dogs and turn <laughs> it back. Both is, uh, you know, it finishes TV interviews. Yeah, right. And this is the difference. Performance mindset says, "How have I performed? And how have peers performed? And could I outperform them?" Right. And we don't do that very often in impact measurement. We do. I monitor the. Th- I do the things I said I would do, and then I evaluate it in isolation. Each isolation. So we never know whether we could have performed better. Had we done other things? If we'd given our money to an alternative organization, would it have performed better? If we had done different things, could we have done, done things better? And it's only when we get benchmarks, comparability, and we do this over and over and over again, year in, year out, that we change to a performance mentality. And I think if we've got a performance mentality going in our work, we would create high levels of impact. I mean, that's ultimately our goal and trying to shift people from that space to this new mentality of thinking about impact performance. Yeah. And it would be fair to say to you, sometimes we measure impact and then we apply it to a whole bunch of different contexts, thinking if it worked here, it's going to work there. It's just like a magic. And that life's a little bit more complicated than that, I guess. Totally. And I think about, I often take a lot of inspiration for our work, flawed though it is from financial accounting, which is actually a system that drives decisions. It works to drive decisions. And in finance, you'd never take another company's margin and say, well, that's one particular company and this company is the same sort of business model. So I just assume the margin is the same or pick any other financial operational metric. We'd never do that because we want to make decisions, specific decisions about performance in that company. All this is predicated, I guess, on this big question, and that is coming up with a standard impact measurement approach. Because every once in a while, it can be a little bit like the Tower of Babel out there with everybody doing things, but it's apples to oranges to pears. Where do we stand with that? And what are some of the work you're doing to see that we can get a common metric that we can look at this intelligently? Yes, it's all, as I describe some of these things, the theory sounds great. The practice is, it is complex. There's no question about it. And I'm not someone that believes we'll ever end up with a single metric to rule all social impact. I do think it's more varied than that. But it's fundamentals that can be sector by sector or can be as simple as listening to large numbers of people describing how they experience a product or service, what things change in their lives, letting them describe which things are most material, and then building standardized tools and social surveys around those topics and then repeating them over and over again with multiple organizations. And a classic example of this, take off smallholder agriculture. 
we hear over and over again from farmers the things that matter to them are returns and whether they're getting a decent income, which we might call a living income, their, their resilience and whether or not they're overly stressed about the future and whether they're worried about their future livelihood. Increasingly, actually, things around environmental stewardship, what are they thinking about the future of their farm and intergenerationally? And then the fairness of their trading relationships comes up often, often. Mm. And we will build a tool around those topics, which we will get hundreds of organizations to all, all click. It's not perfect. It will improve over time. But that just starts the process. And we need sector by sector more and more of that kind of work. And then I think the best tools will rise to the top, just as they will elsewhere. And we'll see and people start to say, yeah, we use the 60 decibels tool or we use the 59 decibels tool or the 65 decibels tool. And then people will have the standardized tools that they can all use. And 60 decibels, you're a strategic partner with the Impact Management Project. Are they making any headway in this arena? Well, I think what the Impact Management Project did, which was extraordinary, is to bring people together who are all talking different languages and get a group, hundreds and I think maybe even thousands of practitioners to come together and say, okay, we're going to agree to a bunch of principles around what dimensions of impact should be considered, which actually hadn't been done before. Because some people were saying, well, we just got an output metric and some people have got, we're just lives reported and other people were going further than that. And they talked about what impact has happened, how much impact to whom, what contribution have you made and whether any impact risk. And I think that was a huge gift to this sector. So that it's almost like a checklist of have I got information about those five dimensions of impact? If I have, I've got a full picture of this. Of course, each sector will require data underneath each of those dimensions and that will require building. But we use those impact management project dimensions as sort of guiding principles of whether we've got the right data sources in any project we do. Yeah, it's successive approximations. You don't get there with a magic wand. It just is step by step by step. Well, occasionally with a step backwards too, I'm sure in there, because everybody thinks their metric is the metric. I'm sure you've run into that. Let me ask you about ESG investing. That's environment, social, and governance, and how we look at it. I mean, what does it take into account, and what does it fail to address when measuring impact? ESG is the hot topic at the moment, and it has its strong advocates and its strong critiques. I think the key thing for ESG is where it's come from. It's always been a negative screen. And I think that's important as a first thing. It said, can we yep. avoid bad things happening in the world? Whereas a lot of the stuff we talk about from the social sector or impact investing is actually maximizing good things happening. But perhaps, so there is that distinction. And maybe you'd put that then on a spectrum of all organizations, whether they're trying to reduce bad things or improve good things, they're all having an impact. And to a certain degree, that'd be fair enough. The only additional thing where I worry about ESG is who is ESG for, again, back to some of the questions you had earlier, and its current structure, ESG, consider this environmental, social and governance approach to investing, considers those things as important and worth measuring only if the social and environmental issues that it wants to measure affect financial bottom line. So it is a profit first, people and planet second paradigm. Where one would hope is that you'd have ESG actually also not just think about how people and planet affect profit, but also how profit affects people and planet, as in how businesses, even if affect, how they'll be held accountable to society and the planet, even if those areas have no material impact on their financial returns. And that isn't the case just yet. And I worry that opens the door for more green and purpose washing. Yeah. And I guess the bottom line of all that is, and unless it changes course, we're going to get growing inequality. Totally. I think this is almost being ignored 
by the structure of investing has tended to concentrate capital. And I think it would take something to argue against that, that actually it's a structural way of concentrating capital in the hands of those that own it and will drive greater inequality. Inequality is one of the big social issues of our time. And if we continue structuring ESG as a financial maximization strategy, which is what it is, we will grow inequality and we will actually be contributing to one of the worst social issues that we have. We're back to feudal levels of inequality in societies. Median real incomes haven't increased since the 1980s in many economically developed countries. We have a crisis of inequality on our hands, just as we have a crisis of the environment on our hands. But I think that we are not looking at the crisis of inequality in quite the same way. Exactly. Tom, walk us through a typical 60 decibels impact measurement effort. I mean, how do you work with a client? How much time do they have to dedicate to this? How long does it take for you on average? And What's the end result of it all? Getting to the nuts and bolts of it, I like it then, but we tried to make it as light as possible. Again, one of the things when I first started was this B word kept coming up. Oh, it's burdensome. It's burdensome. And I think, really burdensome? Okay, so we've got to reduce that burden. I don't want to hear the B word ever again. So actually an engagement starts with an organization set describing their social mission, we would say, great, well, we actually have some measurement tools probably for that social mission. Although if you want to ask some different questions, let us know. And then that takes an hour or so of conversation. We design a social tool, a survey tool. The client then provides us with a list of contact details of their customers or beneficiaries or suppliers, et cetera. We make sure to randomize, do all the statistics to make sure we're going to get a representative statistically significant sample. And then we go away and our, we have a network of thousands of researchers around the world in over 70 countries that are doing wow. phone-based surveys predominantly. And we then collect the data, return that in a matter of weeks, and then we internally do the analysis and benchmarking and produce what I think is a pleasant report in terms of a beautiful report. I'm also very keen that data, you know, I don't have, again, I'm not anti-academic reports by any stretch of the imagination, but academic reports aren't exactly engaging to read for a CEO of a business. There's nothing wrong with making, with style as well as substance. Make the report beautiful, make it engaging. Data it can be such a lovely thing to look at. And so we try and produce a very beautiful report, which gets people excited about their data. Wow, you got to do it. I mean, it's our attention span. I mean, we've probably gone on too long here already. Our attention span is getting shorter and shorter. So unless you can make it in 300 words sometimes, these are moving on and this is the way it goes. Two follow-up questions on that. You can benchmark so successfully because you got a battery of questions, your go-to questions. Just give us one or two of those so we get an idea of the kind of question you ask. The most basic question, which is actually trying to elicit from people to describe what outcomes change in their life, is to ask someone about their quality of life. Has a product or service improved their quality of life? And there's a Likert score, which is five different answers from very much improved to very much got worse, and then a little bit improved, a little bit worse, and no change. The key to that is then actually the second question that comes along and says, ask someone to describe why. And we find that combination very nice. If you jump straight into the question of like, how has your life improved because of, how's your life changed because of product X or Y? That's quite overwhelming. But if you ask someone to first give a sense of it and then ask them, why you get to get data about the areas of impact that are important to that person and then you can start to ask them which of those are most material so that's an example of a question of how we check actually the things that an organization might have set out to change are actually the things that someone who has experienced that product service etc they're reporting the same areas of impact as material and then lots of other questions i mean we might ask questions about if someone's reported that safety is really important to them because they're using a solar lantern late at night where there's no electrification we'll ask a question about their perception of safety and it might be a zero to ten scale 
And then you're collecting a lot of data about that and you're comparing, look, this company, the average person says it's improved by 6.8, this one, 8.6, then we can start to rank these companies. Mm -hmm. So I've gotten your report. It's beautiful, yeah. by the way. I love the way you bound it. It's got eight colors. It's really entertaining and pretty insightful. How do I turn these findings into concrete business actions? Well, that is a really good question. And I hope I've had reasonably smart answers for some of them. And for this one, the answer is we're not sure yet, truthfully. This is an emerging practice. And I think that whilst the world of marketing decisions and the world of financial decisions and operational decisions has benefited from data over years and years so that people know exactly what to do and think, well, no one knows ever exactly what to do, but people have strategies, et cetera. The world of impact management based on good impact performance data is nascent. So hopefully the first thing you can do is say, wow, I've never had data like this again. Let's track it again and improve it. At times, there are other things where the example of the data we get will encourage you to make a decision about your distribution channels or your after-sales service or your product design, et cetera. But we're still working out exactly how people should make decisions with this data. But the more data, when people get used to the idea of impact performance, it'll become second nature to make decisions like this, like it is management decision, operational decisions, financial decisions. Great. Tell us a little bit about impact of COVID-19. I know you did a lot with small business owners and others. Just give us an idea of some of the insights you got from that and the work you did related to it. We did a fair amount of work here from people in the gig economy to off-grid energy to smallholder agriculture, tracking how people's lives were changing through COVID. Most of it perhaps wasn't that surprising. For a lot of people, it was the challenges, the smallholder farmers in Kenya, the price of inputs got worse they don't have much power over the price they can charge and so their margins were getting squeezed and their lives were getting worse perhaps one of the most interesting things though and it was the scale that was potentially interesting for people we could judge what things might normally look like compared to what things were like because we had this time series data during covid and just the sheer scale of how much harder it got was alarming and then we'd learn about which solutions might be working and for whom a lot was made about agri-tech and again i'm a big fan of agri-tech but we saw in particular that farmers were not finding as much value through COVID in that. And there was a real divide between women and men in terms of their ability to access those sorts of things during crisis. When people were putting out messages around support, fewer of them were reaching women than men. So we definitely saw some significant divides in some of the support that was provided to people during that time. So Tom, taking some of what you've already said and really putting it all together and trying to crystallize it, what is the biggest challenge facing the impact measurement field? And what is the biggest opportunity that gets you up in the morning? So I think the biggest challenge is adopting a mindset that unless we listen to the people whose lives have or have not changed as a result of the things we might be doing, we're not doing impact measurement as credibly as we ought to be. And there is no shortcut around that, unfortunately. Now, the, the great opportunity is that it's easier and easier to do that. And there are more and more organizations that can provide services to do that. And so this is a huge opportunity. This is a huge opportunity for the social sector at large to start listening in a way that it never has done before. And if we do that, then collectively, we will be much more impactful. Yeah, sounds to me, it's really giving up power and letting the people that you're serving have the ones with the power. And I think we all pay pretty good lip service to that. I don't think it necessarily is done. We like to have the perception of giving up power but we like to stay in control. I think power is actually at the core of all this and it is an issue. And I think in the future, that power will be transferred because more people will be given a voice to exercise that power. Finally, Tom, what's next for 60 decibels? Oh, next. <laughs> 
<laughs> We're growing as we took on a Series A fundraised last year, which is incredibly exciting. We've got some new investors and the work we're looking forward to do, obviously there's lots of operational improvements. I could talk about the techniques of impact measurement until it would bore all your listeners to tears, Denver, but there's a lot of operational work that needs to continually improve. But we're really focusing as well, though, on corporate supply chains. I think there's a big opportunity with large-scale corporates. We've taken on some great new clients from that world recently, which even five years ago, I'd been somewhat cynical about, but who are really thinking about their impact in new ways and the scale that those organizations work at means the improvements there will lead to the improvements of a lot of people through supply chains. That's exciting stuff. For listeners who want to learn more about 60 decibels or maybe even avail themselves of your services, tell us what your website is and what kind of information they could expect to find on it. It is www.60decibels.com. And we've got a great newsletter on there as well that will keep you up to date with all of our work called The Volume. And you can drop us a line at hello at 60decibels.com or find us on Twitter, 60 underscore decibels. Fantastic. Thanks, Tom, for being here today. It was a real pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much, Denver. Such a delight to be here.